Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Comfort Films podcast, episode 23, where we're going to discuss The Fisher King from 1991, directed by Terry Gilliam. This film stars Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams. And also there's the amazing Mercedes Rule, Michael Jeter, Dan Futterman. Amanda Plummer. Amanda Plummer. My unsung fave. I love her. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a really good movie. Fantastic. We haven't watched it in quite a while. Mm. Um, and we kind of were like, what are we going to do? I don't know. What are we going to do? <laughs> and uh, we thought, well, John thought. Let's do a Robin Williams movie, because yeah. we both love Robin Williams. That's probably the least unique thing about us, because who doesn't? Yeah. He's brilliant. Um, and unfortunately, then, there's so many choices to narrow down. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do? Um, but we kind of were looking through his catalog and trying to think about what we'd be interested in talking about, and we kept coming back to The Fisher King, uh, which is one of our favorites yeah. um, of all time, probably. Amazing Robin Williams performance. Yes. I mean, out of a, of a, a really, truly unparalleled career, this one really stands out. And, of course, um, it's got Jeff Bridges, who's a great actor as well. Mm -hmm. He knocks it out of the park. And his work with Mercedes Rule, what an amazing so couple. I mean, it amazing that really... The chemistry. That really popped out to me this time as well, mm -hmm. like, especially um, in the later part of the movie. Mercedes' role is so good. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe how good she was. But yeah, so uh, this movie might not be super familiar to people. Um, I feel like it doesn't get talked about as much. Not as much lately, I, I would say. When we were younger, but, you know, younger is like, you know... When dinosaurs walked the earth, so um, increasingly yeah. long ago, right? Um, uh, so yeah, this time we I did an um at the same time. Is that a jinx? <laughs> no. All right, it's okay. good. Okay, it's good. That means we're in sync. Ooh. Um. So yeah, this time I do think we wanted to, to revisit the old synopsis uh, method that we used to have. I think it's a good call, and um, uh, as always, we are going to have a lot of spoilers. So we're just going to lay everything out. So if you do have an interest in The Fisher King, it is amazing. I would recommend, we would recommend... Very that, much. Yeah, that you watch it before you uh, listen to us chop it up. Yeah, so take this time to give it a stop. Go watch the movie and then come back if you have not seen Fisher King. But if you have and you just need a, a little refresh, this is the short version. So, The Fisher King is about a shock jock mm -hmm. named Jack Lucas, which is Jeff Bridges. And he does a radio show where he talks to call-in people um, and just kind of shoots from the hip, gives his opinion, uh, which most of the time is intended to be kind of sharp, pointed, and biting. Mm -hmm. um, and he has a regular caller named Edwin who calls in and tells his unlucky in love stories um, on a regular basis and in my opinion what I'm understanding is Jack kind of makes fun of him and you know just you know he's the butt of the joke this guy and Edwin calls in to talk about going to a bar and meeting a woman in New York 
and it was a yuppie club and Jack has a real problem with yuppies. So he just goes on a tirade about yuppies and how Edwin shouldn't be hanging out with them and basically gives him the die yuppie scum talk um, and says, you know, it's us or them. So he turns off the, his show, moves on with his day. This is just another day for Jack. Um, the big thing that he's thinking about is auditioning for a TV show because yeah. he's about to break into television. Um, but as he's going through his lines and everything later that evening, he turns on the news and finds that Edwin has actually taken his advice very literally and walked into a yuppie club with a shotgun and just randomly killed a bunch of people. Mm. And, uh, unfortunately the news is very much blaming Jack for this happening, um, because he told him earlier that day, you know, this, these people should be killed, um, as a joke, but this guy didn't take it as a joke. So we fast forward three years. Um, this event has basically killed Jack personally and professionally. Um, he just doesn't have the fire that he used to have and he doesn't expect that anybody would care to hear anything that he has to say at this point. He's living with this woman, Anne, which is Mercedes' role, and working, but I'm going to put that in quotation marks, at her video store. Um, he's not really doing much working. He's doing a lot of sitting in the back room, being by himself, um, because he is very, I think, scared of people um, at this point. And so later that night, they are sitting in the living room watching the TV show that he did not get to audition for that went on to become very successful and feature another person playing the role that was meant for him. It's actually Harry Shearer, which is kind of funny, um, if you can see it on the television. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, this bothers him, but he keeps doing it anyway. Um, he's kind of needling himself in watching this. And it does upset him, and he ends up leaving, drinking, um, and really contemplating suicide, even getting to the point that he's tied some concrete blocks to his feet, and he's going to jump in the river. He's very, very drunk. Some kind of tough kids, I don't know what they are. Street thugs. I was going to say street toughs, but they're like really suburban white kids. Yeah. Yeah, they they're not the crew that I expected to be assassinating homeless. Yeah, you know, I will be honest. But that's what they are. They're they're looking around for homeless people to beat up. Yeah. Um, and they find Jack, and they mistake him for a homeless person because he does look pretty rough at this point. Mm -hmm. And they just start beating him. Yeah. And a large group of homeless people, led by Perry, which is Robin Williams' character, shows up and saves Jack. Um, he is unconscious, so Perry brings him back to the place where he stays, which is kind of a boiler room in an apartment building, I guess, it seems to me. Yeah, it's, it's the apartment that he used to live in mm -hmm. with his wife. Yeah. And then when he came home... After being in an asylum, the property manager landlord let him live in the boiler room for free as long as he had no visitors. Yes, yeah, so 
Jack finds this out after he wakes up, talks to Perry for a little while, is really kind of like, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. Um, and he leaves, talks to his property manager, and finds out that Perry's mental illness stems from the fact that three years earlier, he and his wife were at a bar that got shot up by a crazy person, and his wife was killed. And this, of course, was Edwin. So Jack has run into a person who he inadvertently caused to go crazy. Yeah. That's what he thinks anyway. I mean, to me, it's probably a lot more complicated and layered. But he feels responsible for what has happened to Perry, who used to be a college professor, very successful, and now is mentally ill person talking to little fat what did he does he call them fairy people i believe he calls them fairy people yes you know in in a boiler room of an apartment building so jack decides that he needs to help perry um and he goes about trying to figure out how to do that and while he's hanging out with perry he realizes that perry has fallen in love from afar with this woman lydia which is amanda Plummer. and he doesn't know her or talk to her but perry kind of follows her around and sees what she's doing every day, and he knows her routine. And Jack decides that the way that he can make up for what he's done is to get love back into Perry's life yeah. in the form of Lydia. And he goes about doing that. Um, pretty much that's, you know, where we go from here. Um, and I think overall, I would say that the story here is that um, Jack is trying to save Perry but Perry is also saving Jack. That's I, I would say that's exactly it. Because when you watch the movie, you think, oh, this is going to be this redemption arc for Jeff Bridges' character. This is Jack Lucas's comeback. Yes. And it's because he helps out Perry, Robin Williams' character. But it's... It's, I mean, I'm just repeating what you said. It is mutual. It is mutual. No. And I thought about that multiple times while we were watching it. Um, Perry asks, I didn't say this part, but I do think I need to put this in. What Perry has asked Jack to do to help him is to get the Holy Grail for him. Perry was like a medieval lecturer, I guess, at the school. Um, he studied mythology and legend. And... Somehow he has decided that this person who lives in New York in like this kind of medieval castle type building and has this chalice cup has the actual Holy Grail and Jack is the person who he believes can get it for him. So he's asked Jack to do that and Jack kind of pushes that off and goes for like this finding love thing instead. Yeah. But... At the end of the movie, or last, like, 20 minutes of the movie, Robin Williams' character, Perry, is actually attacked by the same suburban street thugs yep. who come to hurt homeless people. And he is beaten into unconsciousness and into being comatose, basically. And uh, it was just after he and Jack had had a disagreement. And Mercedes Roland had a disagreement. And, like, Jack kind of went off on everybody at that point. And he feels like the only thing he can do to fix this is to go get this grail. So he he breaks into this guy's house and steals this silver cup 
which is actually a trophy. Right. <laughs> Not at all a grail. No. But he brings it to the asylum where they have put Perry um, because he's non-responsive. And he gives it to him, and it, and that's when Perry wakes up. Um, and Lydia has been there visiting Perry, so they're, you know, he has both the chalice and Lydia at the end. And, yeah, I think that, so the myth of the Fisher King is what we're playing off of here. Mm-hmm. And in that myth, there's this, the Fisher King is this person who is like a leader, but he's been injured or damaged in some way. And his damage kind of mirrors that of his land. So he's been, it's like a thigh wound, which actually people think is more of code for like impotency. Mm -hmm. Um, And his land is dying because of this. And he needs to drink from the grail cup in order to come back to life. So he's searching for this cup and he has everybody searching for this cup and nobody can find it. Um, And then this person brings him a drink and isn't trying to find the cup, but it's just trying to give him a drink. And it's actually the grail cup, which brings the person back and the land is restored and everything is restored. And that, that person, when Robin Williams tells the story in the movie is like the jester, but I believe in the myth, it's actually the knight Parsifal, which is Perry. That's where the name that's oh. why he goes by that name. Um, so we're to imagine Jeff Bridges as the Fisher King. But the fact is, I think that we also are supposed to see Perry as the Fisher King as well. Because, you know, he's the one who gets the cup and is restored at the end of the movie because of the cup. And, you know, Jack is too. But Jack is the one who steals the cup. So... It's like a role reversal. It's like they're both playing this, both playing the Fisher King and both playing Parsifal as well. Yeah. So. They've got a lot. They've got a lot in here to keep you going. I mean, one thing that we should mention is that Robin Williams' character, Perry, his actual name is Henry Sagan. And ever since he, you know, had this PTSD, and it seems kind of like he has schizophrenia, you know, was, you know, institutionalized, he has taken on this role of being Perry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's not his, yeah, Perry's not his real name. He's just taken on that role and believes that he's questing for the grail. Yes. And he has some different advice that he gives in the film. Um, You know, I'm paraphrasing, but he says that the three most important things in the world are to be kind to all forms of life, a oh, part of me, to respect all forms of life, to have a nice bowel movement, <laughs> you know, and uh, to have a navy blazer. <laughs> uh, again, paraphrasing, but yeah, those are the secrets to life. Respect all forms of life, have at least one nice bowel movement, you know, on a regular basis. And have a navy blazer. I mean, solid advice from Perry. It, well, and what's funny is... The number two advice about the number two. <laughs> That's excellent. Very smart. Well, and also, after he gives this advice, the next time that we see Jack Lucas, Jeff Bridges' character, he's wearing a navy blazer. Oh, that's funny. No word on if he pooped or not. No, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> Robin Williams is so great, and he has this monologue that he gives about the importance of a very strong, powerful, cleansing, magical bowel movement. And he even like acts it out. Yeah. When he's talking about it at one point. It's it's great. I mean, I think that you have to start a discussion of this movie talking about Robin Williams. Because sure. I really kind of was thinking after we watched it, like who else could have taken this role? Hmm. And I have to say nobody. Like, I just think that he has the exact combination of humor and heart yeah. that this requires to not become unreasonably weird or smaltzy or, you know, overly treacly. Yeah. Um, he just plays it very real and it's just handled handled well. He does a good job and... You can see why, you know, somebody would want to be his friend, even though, you know, he's dirty and lives in a boiler room and talks to unseen creatures in the air yeah. and has hallucinations where he really gets very upset and is running from the red knight that he sees. Well, Jack, at one point, tries to give Perry money to atone for his sin, you know, to make it go away. So Jack ends up giving Perry $70. And Perry goes, well, Perry first says, hey, do you want to go get some lunch? You yeah. know, say they would use this money. And then he's like, no, you know, it's for you. And then Perry takes the money and gives it to another homeless man. Yeah, because he, need. I mean, that's just the kind of person Perry is. Yeah. Like, he doesn't feel like he needs it. And, I mean, the script is also here, like, working against Jack, because I think just before this scene, we had a scene where he was talking to Mercedes Rule and explaining to her that he's just met this person whose life he adversely affected, mm -hmm. you know, by that event of him telling the guy to shoot the place up. And, you know, he says, I wish I could have just paid a fine. Yes. And had it be over. Yes. You know, and that's kind of where he's at with it. He just wants to move on from this thing because this defined him as a person and he doesn't want that to be the case anymore. And he wishes he could just say, okay, you know, here's the money. I'm done. You know, I did my penance, but he can't. And like, this is a very real example of him trying to do that by handing money over, but it doesn't work. And after that is when he, you know, decides he's going to try to um, get Lydia and Perry together. Which is a, a fun part of the movie because they they decide to... Well, what Jack comes up with is this idea that she's won, you know, a membership in Anne's video store. Yes. Which Anne doesn't like because she's going to have to give free video rentals. And then she also has to loan her uh, a free VCR. Yes, because she doesn't <laughs> even have a VCR. Right. Um, but they go through all of these things to do this. Um, they try calling her. She's skeptical. So they hire this other homeless guy who's played by Michael Jeter, just one of the high points of the film. Fully agree. Michael plays... Jeter's amazing. Yeah, he's he's got this talent that just oozes out of him. And it, it he switches all the time. You probably would not know 
it's the same person playing the different roles. You've seen him in this. And in this, he plays a homeless cabaret singer. And when we first find him, he is in a pile of horse poop <laughs> and bleeding in Central Park. Yeah, he's just lying on the ground and he's miserable. And he's screaming. He's screaming yeah. for help. Yeah. Um, and they end up hiring him. He dresses up and goes in and sings um, at her workplace to sing about her winning this video <laughs> store contest. Yes, and it's a wonderful musical number, and it's very big, and it's very bold. It's like, it's excellent. But for a person that's so shy, they don't like having that spotlight on them. Yeah, of course, and that's that's her. Like, Lydia kind of lives in her own little bubble. She doesn't really interact with people. She's very introverted, very shy, but, you know, they kind of make a spectacle of her with this. Yeah. And I think it kind of makes her decide, well, these people aren't going to leave me alone, so I'm going to go down to this video store, <laughs> which is what gets her there. Um, and she does meet Perry and, and, you know, against all odds and they hit it off. Right. Like you really wouldn't think that he would hit it off with anyone. Um, but he does. They're kind of, they seem kind of like meant for each other. I think Anne even says that. Pretty sure you're right. When they're out to dinner, because they set it up so that they can actually have a double date. Yeah. Yeah. So... Actually, that was something that happens when she's at the video store. Um, Lydia's not that interested in videos, but she is interested in getting her nails done. Um, and Anne knows how to do nails. So she's going to come over and have Anne do her nails. And then when she's over there, they're going to ask Lydia if she wants to go to dinner with all three of them. And they go out for dumplings, which they know Lydia loves. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, she and... And Perry hit it off very much so. Um, she's a person who's clearly been hurt before she tells him that she wants him to come up and stay with her. But she knows that if, if they do that, then he's going to be distant in the morning and he's going to leave. And she's going to feel so good t t the next day. But then, you know, start to feel bad because she knows that he's not, you know, really interested in being with her and he tries to explain to her like, like that's not who I am you know and it's really touching it's like a really interesting kind of a romance that we're watching because he's basically a stalker yes and that's and again, he tells yeah. her that yes 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 yeah and it, it's fully accepted it's embraced and at least the way I interpret the scene it's seen as loving these yeah. folks are not your traditional out-of-the-box people no they're, they're very not. unique and um it's it's interesting because they they really flip the script on you things that you think would be a deal breaker anywhere else and this seem to be things that pique interest you know show that they have such a strong connection yeah i the amanda Plummer robin williams love story is so wild when they're out at the chinese restaurant and <laughs> it's lydia has said before that when she would go out to company work parties she would reorganize the food yeah. on the trays so that it always looks full 
And when they're out on a double date with Jack and Anne, <laughs> she keeps moving around all of the stuff on the table so that it'll look full. And then Robin Williams, you know, he jumps in as well because he wants to be helpful. And he starts to just knock stuff over. And it's it, it's quite comical. It is. It yeah. is. So, I mean, I think that, yeah, we find out that she has some, you know, mental illness of her own. Yes. It sounds like OCD. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, you know, yeah, like, I don't know exactly what we say here, but he's definitely paranoid and delusional. Sure. Um, and he sees things that aren't there, and he's terrified of this Red Knight character who he sees, which, who wouldn't be, frankly? Right. Because we see the vision that he's seeing as well, and it is terrifying. It's this, you know, huge red, you know, knight on a horse with, you know, smoke blowing all over the place and stuff. And, and flames, I yeah, believe, as well. Yeah. yeah, and they're shooting out, and this guy's going to kill him, and it's it's kind of a... A paranoid vision of this shooter, you know, we, we later find out um, through a dramatization of the actual shooting mm -hmm. that um, Perry was kind of in front of his wife when she got shot and there was like blood spray that hit him and, you know, this kind of red vision turned into this red night yeah i mean that's that's exactly it I, I i think that that's i i never actually put it together that it was like his wife's blood and brains i know that's gross but that's it well like, it was it was very it, graphic it hit him right in the face and you saw that i never put it together that that's how the the red night came into play i just thought it was a symbol of the entire event, like a like a PTSD trigger. Yeah, well, and that it is, it is a PTSD trigger, uh -huh. but it's actually very literal. Yeah, I mean, like this movie is very highly stylized. Anyway, I yes. think that's something we would want to point out. You have this red knight who is like this vision, who's based off of this event that happened, but then a really beautiful scene um, that we have. Is where they're waiting. Jack and Perry are waiting for Lydia to show up at the train station mm -hmm. during rush hour. And Perry's like, she's always here. She's not here yet. Um, and as they're waiting, all of the entire busy station start dancing. Oh, that's, that's my favorite scene. <laughs> it's so That's great. my favorite scene. Yeah. It, it just, it takes something which can just be so overwhelming. Like a, a crowd during a busy time of day in a major city, and it makes it fun and beautiful and light. You know, everyone's dancing, and it's, oh, they, they're, everybody is partnered up, and I didn't see one group that was that was unhappy. Yeah, I mean, they just are, are dancing, and everything is so well choreographed. Yes. Um, the people are waltzing, but they're also, like, going in like this counterclockwise circle around the entire room yes and, and the... I, I, yeah i was gonna say i don't know if it's grand central or Penn, but there's like a clock yes we're on the same page in the middle of the room mm -hmm. and they're kind of all going around that clock in a clockwise way yeah um and then lydia does show up but she's not really a part of this exactly She's just kind of making her way through the crowd. 
Um, and it's just, there's something so special about that scene. And when they finally get to her, you know, then it's when the crowd turns back into being just a crowd and they're yeah. not dancers anymore. And nobody's kind of working with each other. It just kind of just drops into just regular people pushing past each other yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, I mean, I guess this is Perry's imagination. Sure. It's what we're seeing. Um, and I like it. It's like Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, I love it. it. The letdown, it's like Cinderella. That's what I was just like, oh, yeah. Because just like you have until midnight. Yeah. And then it's gone. Yeah. And I don't even know that he knew what the time limit was on this. But all the, oh, it's just so pretty. It is. It's a great scene. And it's. It just puts you in, in Perry's mindset, you know, mm -hmm. that he sees this person and he just lights up yeah, because of her presence and it makes everything in the world beautiful to him because of her. And it's it's really nice. And he's just such a romantic at heart, mm -hmm. you know, that love is like a major driving force for him. And having that love, like, stripped away from him in such a horrible way kind of destroyed who he is and love is repairing him um so in that way jack is right you know that love is something that he needed to restore to perry yes perry wants the grail too um and that's kind of the symbol of his um sanity returning to him um or his reason returning to him i guess but at the same time he needed the love as well. And I don't know if he could have been restored at the end were it not for both. Because while he's in the asylum, which is a very scary place, I have to imagine. It was oh, yeah. where he was before and it's terrifying and it's part of his vision mm -hmm. is being stuck in a straitjacket. Yes. Um, at one point, you know, the, the when he kind of loses it and has kind of his psychotic break, is actually right after this lovely, wonderful first date that they have with Lydia. Um, and after he talks to her and everything goes wonderfully, he sees the night and he's wearing kind of this oversized white suit. I guess it's Jack's suit. Yes, and Jack stapled it. Yeah. The helmet. Oh my God, I think it's fear. And he's time. so yeah. much bigger than, because Jeff Bridges is like so much taller. <laughs> yeah. And he's got the suit on, but it kind of starts to remind him of a straight jacket as he's running away because the arms are too long and it is kind of boxy and oversized on him. And it gives him flashbacks to being in the asylum. But this time when he's in the asylum, he's not alone because Lydia is coming to visit him. And yes. when Jeff Bridges comes to visit him, we see Lydia there and she's talking to people about making sure that they've cleaned the special bedding that she brought in for him. And while everyone else is like lying in the stark white kind of institutional bed, he has these colorful sheets and pillows yeah. Um, and you can see that he's being taken care of. So both, you know, that and the chalice are the things that he needs to be okay. Well, if you think about it, it's it's like uh, it's like Sleeping Beauty, really. Mm. It's like he has this magical spell on him, and what can bring him back to life is this Grail, and I also think love. And I mean, getting getting the Grail is an act of love because Jack 
is not a believer at this point in his life. And he's a guy that his fame came from not caring about people. And we, we see that throughout the film. When he's high status with his job, he doesn't care about people at all. People ask for money, he doesn't care. The people that call into his show, he makes fun of them, mm -hmm. you know. And he causes this situation where Perry's wife is murdered. And that's, yeah. and that's just because he cares so little. And every time we see Jeff Bridges, it was a very popular song at the time. I've got the power, you know, comes on every time. Yeah. And it's just like he thinks that he is God, you know, that he's got it figured out. And he definitely has a 180, you know. And uh, But he has a 180. Then he has another 180. Yeah, I was And then he say, goes back to being I, a jerk. I was going to say, you've, you're making a really smart point here because... What happens over the course of things, you know, after Perry and Lydia hit it off, he feels like he's succeeded. Right. And he feels great about what he's done. Yeah. And he calls his agent and is, like, getting back on top and everything. And uh, he starts to mistreat Anne at this point. Yes. This person who has really supported him financially, emotionally, in every possible way that he could be supported. Yes. For three years. Um, and he's, like, saying that he's going to go get a job again. And she's happy for him. She's happy that he wants to work and that he feels like himself again. Yeah. But then he basically immediately tells her, yeah, you know, and what that means is that we're, we need to take a break. Yeah. And you can't believe that he's just going to leave her. Yeah. You know, she's thinking they're going to get a better place. Things are going to be great for them. They're going to stay together. Their relationship's going to continue. Yeah. He's going to be a better partner. But no, he's yeah. just going to ditch her. It super sucks for her. Yeah. Because it's, it's like... Heartbreaking. All the things that she thought they were working for together. Yes. She realizes that she was just working for it on her own mm -hmm. well no she was working for it for them together and he was just working on himself yeah. and it's such a disappointment to her and mercedes rule is unbelievably brilliant in that scene yes i couldn't believe how good she was as emotional as this movie is in so many places mm -hmm. that was actually the scene that cr that just cracked me this time sure. Um, because she just plays it so real and you feel her pain so deeply that, you know, she thought that they were building a life together right? and he was really just slumming it until he could be back on top. And her realization of that is so terrible. Well, it's horrible to find that the person you've poured so much love and soul into is just this selfish bastard. Just a selfish bastard that was just leeching off of you. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's a heck of a scene. I mean, and when he, he kind of obviously realizes this and and comes back to make amends, but I felt like, like is it going to be enough? <laughs> like, right. you know, because he really hurt her, and I feel like he really has a lot to prove that he's different, you know? And, but, you know, he does have that kind of epiphany um, because he is going to a meeting, like he and his agent, which is a small role, 
but it's David Hyde Pierce. Yes. <laughs> who played um, Frazier's brother. Uh, so Niles. Niles, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, interesting to see that. And he's a great actor. So it was, Fantastic. you know, small part, but he did everything he could with it. He is taking him for a meeting. Uh, he's taking Jack for a meeting about a, a TV show about homeless people. Right. Actually. A comedy um, about homeless yeah, people. Yeah, a comedy about homeless people, which is super ironic given that, you know, Jack has just been actually dealing with real homeless people. And while they were walking into the building, um, he sees the Michael Jeter cabaret singer homeless guy character who he interacted with earlier yep. in the movie. And the guy's calling out to him like, you know me, you know me. And he just ignores the guy. He goes up, meets with this executive who's played by John Delancey, who's Q from Star Trek. Yep. Uh, and he was very good in this, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's selling this idea of this horrific-sounding homeless person comedy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jack just realizes, like, I can't do this. Like, I can't. Well, it's terrible because it's like, yeah, the, the hook is they want to be homeless. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah, it's freedom for them. I mean, like, it's it's such a commentary on a thing that was a problem, a major problem, I think, starting in the 80s, and has really just gotten a lot worse um, since then. I mean, this movie came out in 91, mm-hmm. and it was already a big problem. Um, once there was not a lot of mental illness support available um, anymore, and all these hospitals were closed... That pretty much turned a lot of mentally ill people out onto the street. Yeah. Um, and they didn't have the support that they needed. Um, and we're still experiencing problems with that now, especially in major cities. I know we certainly have it here in L.A. Yes. There are a lot of unhomed people who don't have the resources that they need, and they have nowhere to get them. Well, and what's also terrifying is, you know, we talked, you know, kind of we joked around about these goofy, preppy, white boy thugs yeah. taking out the homeless. But there are people yeah. that are targeting the homeless for violence. Yeah, for And sure. it's, it, it's disgusting. It's yeah, disgusting. And, and the, the biggest problem that I see with it is that nothing is happening like, to change the situation. Like, here near us, we do have, um, they've made it like a tiny house village where mm-hmm. they actually do have some resources to get people back, you know, on their feet. And they have this place where they can have their things so that they don't have to be worried about losing their stuff. Um, because when you're homeless, you have to carry everything you own with you at yes. all times. And it can be really scary. You can be, you know, at risk for somebody stealing it. Or also, if you're staying on sidewalk or something, the city can just come by and take all your stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and cleaning up. So this gives them a place to have their things and a place, a safe place to sleep um, and clean up and things like this so that hopefully they can find work and get back on their feet. But it, it, it can only serve so many people. Yeah. You know? And it also limits services, I think, to people who don't have substance abuse issues. Um, so if, you know, and there are a lot of people who do. So there are a lot of people who are on drugs or who 
or drinking or whatever, and there's just not help for people to get off of those. Um, so you end up with people who are homeless. They can't take advantage of that. And maybe they're self-medicating because they are mentally ill. I mean, well, and you're sleeping on cold cement that's dirty. There's bugs. It's noisy. There's so much pollution. I mean, I I definitely would want something to elevate me out of that reality. You know? Yeah. I mean, exactly. And there's just it's such a multi-layered problem, and I still feel like there's just no good solution. And there's certain that I don't even feel like. Our government in L.A., our local government, is doing anything about this, really. Um, they come through and they clean everything out, but that doesn't solve a problem. It That's just, not helping people. It doesn't help anyone. It just yeah. covers it up. And so I just feel like, you know, they float these ideas, but then nothing happens, and it just really sucks because nobody is actually getting help. And to see that this problem has been going on this long mm -hmm. um, is sad. Just to think that we're pretty much in the same place or way worse than we were in 1991 and, you know, slightly before that. Um, because we don't understand how to help people take care of themselves when they have a mental illness or they have a substance abuse problem. You know, um, I think the Michael Jeter character actually had AIDS or his friends had AIDS was what we were getting out of that because he was saying all his friends were dying. Yes. So, you know, that's another situation where, you know, I don't know if he was being ostracized because he had AIDS, but that seemed like his situation. The Michael Jeter introduction in the park is Michael Jeter screaming for help. And, you know, Robin Williams runs through Central Park to get him. And Jeff Bridges is in tow. It's almost like Jeff Bridges is in training yeah. to be a knight, you know, which is interesting. Yeah. And then they get there and they get to Michael Jeter. And what happens? Jeff Bridges takes Michael Jeter and puts him, you know, in his arms, like kind of over his lap, like the like the Pieta. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the Virgin Mary holding Jesus the, yeah, yeah after he had been crucified and he had died yeah and that image comes up twice actually well actually it'd be the first time i think the first time we see that is when perry saves jack from the uh the people that were oh, gonna yeah no uh, i think you're right yeah when they're out by the river correct that um, so the 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 thugs that were gonna take jack out it, we have that same situation so it's yeah, like well that's like a night thing again because perry rides up kind of yes with his you know group of knights yes um and he shoots this makeshift arrow right mm -hmm. at these guys hits um, them right in the crotch yeah. it's yeah. a weird it's a weird kind of thing it's, it doesn't have a point on it no it's, it's kind of just a yeah it's just a ball like yeah. a fabric ball or something but it's enough to like get the guy's attention and and not in not a good way. Um, had and... we I'm sorry. Had we mentioned that one of these people is Dan Futterman, who plays Robin Williams's son in the Birdcage. You did mention Dan Futterman, but I don't think we said who it was. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. I was watching it and I saw the guy, and I've seen him in several things, and I'm like, wait, that's the guy from Birdcage that plays the son. So it was really funny that they were in this together with, 
you know, Robin Williams attacking him and then him later attacking Perry. So, yeah, it, it was interesting. Yeah. That it, those two actors were together again. But I, I think that one of the scenes that I really enjoy in this movie is Robin Williams naked in the park. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, he he's telling... So basically, Robin Williams strips off all his clothes, and boy, do I mean all. Mm-hmm. Um, get ready to see more of Robin Williams than you've ever thought possible. <laughs> um, I mean, he sits down on the ground and, like, drags his butt across the grass like a dog. Like, he's completely, completely naked and loves it and thinks it's the best. Yes. And really wants uh, Jack to to get naked and lay down in the grass with him. Just because he's so in love with, li- with like, life and the world and the sensations and, you know, being part of it, you know. And Jack doesn't get it at all. No, he doesn't stop and smell the roses. No. And, and I think he's... he's terrified of what you know, he's being asked to do. Well, that's what we see from the character. I mean, we see his character goes to drugs and alcohol as an escape. Whatever he does, he doesn't want to be in the present moment. Yeah, he wants to be numb. Yes, he doesn't want to want to feel anything. So there's something I'd like to bring up in terms of the costumes in this. Okay. So, when they go out on the double date, Robin Williams is in a white suit with black pinstripes. Mm-hmm. It's like he's a prisoner. Oh, okay. Okay, it's like he's a good person, but he's in jail. Okay. Now, this gets pretty neat. So, I don't know if it's the next day when Jack decides that he wants to go back to work, so he calls his agent. Jack is wearing a black shirt with white stripes. Oh, See, they're always together. There's always, like, this connection between the two of them. And that's true uh, in other parts of the movie, too. Like, I think that they are commonly both wearing the similar earth tones at the same time and things like that. And it's just that there's a strong connection between those two characters. Um, I love that you talked about it's like Jeff Bridges is like a knight in training. Yes. Because I really see that. And I think that's a great, it's like, he's the squire. Yes. You know, coming up with Perry. Um, and I do have to say like the acting really mirrors the relationship in a a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Like I have to give a ton of credit to Jeff Bridges in this movie because He's a big star at this at that point, oh, you know. Huge. He's from a, a Hollywood royalty kind of family with yeah. his dad being a big actor, his brother, you know. They're big, you know, the Bridges are known entities and uh he's in this movie, he's the star of the movie, but at no point do I feel that he is trying to be the star of the movie. Um, when he's in scenes with Robin Williams, they're on totally equal footing. Yes. When he's in scenes with Mercedes Rule, they're on totally equal footing. Now, I'm na- I'm not necessarily saying the characters are, because you could have a higher status character in the scene, but Bridges at no point, in my opinion, is trying to outshine anyone or trying to like be the biggest person in the scene. Um, he's very supportive in his acting. Yes. And I think it's perfect. It's excellent to see him at work. 
because I always think of him as the dude, which, you know, was much later. But um, at that point in my life, I'd never thought of Jeff Bridges as this conflicted guy. In my mind, I thought about Jeff Bridges as a party guy, a carefree guy. Yeah, he That's seems the confident. Image. Yeah, yes. he seems like a confident guy. I yeah. mean, and why wouldn't he, you know? And that's kind of, that works at the beginning of the movie very well when he's playing, like, Jack at the top of his game, mm-hmm. um, who just really doesn't care about what he says or does or anything. Yeah. It's just all about himself. But then later, like, he's got these scenes where he's playing, you know, a scene with Robin Williams lying in the bed comatose, and right. I don't feel like he's... I feel like he's matching Robin Williams's presence somehow, if that makes any sense at all. It but does. I, I feel like he he just does such a wonderful job in this, um, being a good scene partner, basically. And you know, Robin Williams is kind of known for like this over the topness um, and everything, but I don't think that that's a bad thing in this. No. Because it's these fits of madness, and also just these these fits of youthfulness. Yeah. He has this jubilance to yeah. him in so many of the scenes, and the way he approaches life. And it's, it's interesting that his PTSD regressed him, I would say, to being a child in a fairy tale. And I believe we actually see the paper that he wrote on the Fisher King at one point, in the boiler room. I could be wrong, but I think that he might have actually written a paper on it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. That's but, possible. Yeah. So it's it's sad because you know how much pain is locked inside of this man. But at the same time, he seems to be living his best life by being in the present. And also, I mean, we've seen it throughout literature, the fool can be the best person. It's the most enlightened. And so that's that's what we're getting. Yeah. That's what we're getting from him. Well, thank you for, like, completely setting up my entire master's thesis. All right, good. Right there, because that's what it was about. Um, <laughs> I basically wrote about the characters of Fool and King Lear um, and how that character was, like, ironically, the wisest person. Um, in the play, he does disappear halfway through the play, and Lear kind of loses it completely at that point. But it is really interesting because King Lear is a play about madness and grief, and you know, has this fool character who is constantly a speaker of truth, um, even when Lear really doesn't want to hear it. And a lot of times at the beginning of the play, he doesn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it there's definitely a Shakespearean element um to this. And I mean I'm sure that that really makes sense because Terry Gilliam is the director. Um he did not write this movie, but he did direct it, and he is very connected to classical literature. I mean, he did he worked very hard for years on like a Don Quixote type of thing. Yep. Um, and this is his second Grail movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although the first one was a Monty Python movie, which is truly one of my favorite movies of all time. So that's great. Well, it's also interesting to note 
that I thought Robin Williams favored Graham Chapman in his look in this film. I really agreed with you a ton, Um, especially Graham Chapman as King Arthur in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. They have the same kind of beard, um, the same kind of color. Uh, Yeah, and I I thought that was interesting. But yeah, Terry Gilliam, I'm sure, was playing not only on the Fisher King myth, um, but on this wise fool kind of trope that appears throughout literature. Um, Because, yeah, he's smart. He's a smart guy. Well, Terry Gilliam, in a lot of his work, deals with people that are intoxicated. And I felt that the way this film was shot did a fantastic job of putting us in the driver's seat. Of when you're loaded, you're out in the dark... Things take on the surreal quality, the scary quality, you know. And when we saw Jack, you know, in his, his fit of rage because he was upset watching the sitcom and he left and he uh, tore his coat, then he uh, fell in the puddle and, you know, and yeah. he's drunk. It, it's just like we really caught that feeling of being cold and alone in the dark. Yeah. And it, I also think that that's, that's symbolic. That he's literally in the dark. He's not in the light. You yeah, know, he's, he's having, not there at all. He's having a dark night of the soul at that time. That This little kid gives him this funny Pinocchio doll yeah. that he ends up carrying around and talking to for the whole night. Um, and then he ends up, you know, that Pinocchio doll shows up throughout the movie. Um, I think he gives it to Perry when Perry's in the asylum. He does. So, I don't know exactly what that Pinocchio doll is symbol of, but he does keep showing up. He sure does. Yeah. And that's another literature allusion as well, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think Terry Gilliam also deals a lot with perception and re- versus reality and madness yes. and reason. I mean, in a lot of his other movies, we've... Like Brazil yes. is another movie. Um, the reaction shots. You know, these people being horrified, being delighted. They do a great job of doing it. And they also do a great job in, in the in the shooting of, of all these films with making things distorted. It's yes. always off. There's always something altering your perception. And I love that we're able to feel so strongly what our main character is feeling. Yeah, he mirrors that really well. And I think, yeah, we see that in, I don't know, 12 Monkeys. Yes. Also, there's a lot about madness in 12 Monkeys. He does another film with Jeff Bridges later, and I can't remember the name properly. Maybe it's Tide World. Maybe it's Tide Land. And it's a similar character to the dude, except... You know, the dude, Big Lebowski, it's an upbeat story, right? Everything comes out dandy. But in Tideland, it is not that. It's a very dark look at addiction. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like it's, you know, with Jeff Bridges, I've seen a good number of his movies. I'm not going to say I've seen them all. But I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I feel like Fisher King, this started... You know, this dude-like thing for him. I do think that 
you have a point that like he's got like the long hair and kind of the yes swagger you yes know? <laughs> yes uh of of a character like the dude i think they said he wore some clothes in this that he later wears as the dude oh that's fantastic so <laughs> it's yeah it it all seems to be it all seems to be looped together one of the pieces of the story that i like very much which i feel kind of borders on magical is the way that jack seems to clean up because he seems to be drinking very heavy yeah and it feels like all the time and um you know i just <laughs> i just can't imagine that that would be necessarily easy to just shut off i mean maybe it could if the the feeling was right but you know i love pizza do you get what I mean? And well, I would keep eating the pizza, and if the pizza wasn't around, I would miss the pizza. I would chase the pizza. Well, I think that the idea is that the drinking isn't necessarily a dependency. Yeah. It's more of a distraction. Okay. So he's doing it to keep himself from thinking about what he has done and to keep himself from the guilt feelings. And when he decides to throw himself into this Perry situation, he doesn't necessarily need the drinking anymore because he's being distracted by what he's doing. Well, and he needs to actually be sober and have some presence because he wants to atone. Yeah. He feels like writing things with Perry will change the entire course of his life. Yeah, yeah, and that, that that's his redemption. Yes. Um, so I think he's throwing himself into that and doesn't need the drink to distract him. Yeah. I think in reality, what you're saying is actually true, though. <laughs> like, if you drink that much, as he's presented as drinking, mm -hmm. I don't think you just turn the switch off without help. Um, but I think in this, it is more meant to be a symbol yeah. um, of his escape. Um, and he's able to divert that into a, a more constructive pursuit, mm -hmm. which helps him to move forward. So something that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I'd love to mention it, is they sing the song, I Love New York in June. A How lot. about you? Yeah, yeah. they do. <laughs> that seems to be... I, I don't know, a, a symbol of, I, I mean, maybe I'm going deep here, a symbol of rebirth with the song. You know, we're talking about June. And, no, I think you're... You know, and it's, it's happiness. It's like everything's coming back into bloom. You know, love is in bloom at the end of this. You know, both guys are partnered up with a woman that they love, and you feel that that relationship's going to go forward and be fruitful. Yes. You know, both have found what they wanted. And with Jack, he found that what he wanted is he wanted to be with Anne because what he wanted more than anything was love and, you know, attention. You can say anybody that goes in entertainment wants love and attention. When you have someone literally right there who loves you, you know, and, and, and cares about you, it's like, I don't need, you know, yeah. th this other stuff, which is, is, is negative. Because Jack's job, the problem with Jack's job is it's not that he's just a radio DJ or he tells some jokes. He makes his living by actively hurting people. Yeah, and, and it's not a constructive thing. It's no. painful. He creates more pain in the world. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, he is striving for success, and that seems like that's the most important thing to him. Yeah. I mean, a scene that we personally thought, from our point of view in our lives, was funny was when he and Anne, at the beginning, are watching the show um, that he you know we we had seen him he was going to audition for the show yeah of course they you know probably pulled it back and didn't offer him the the opportunity because of what happened but somebody else got cast in the show it became a big hit yeah he hears like this tagline all the time right and he kind of hate watches it because he's so bitter um, and we laughed about that because there have been times when, you know, John didn't get a job or something and, you know, cause this happens way more often than not, you know, yeah. cause it's the way that life is in the entertainment industry. You're going to audition for, you know, hundreds of things and get two, you know, yeah. if you're super, super talented and lucky, um, but we'll often look and see who got cast in it after all. And most of the time it's. A totally different type right than you so we're just like well why did they even bother <laughs> calling you in for it if they were just gonna cast a 25 year old blonde muscle guy you know but then you're um, like oh my god i actually got to go out for this thing and oh my god i could have been the guy on the television show yeah and oh my god and so it's exactly. that's what keeps you that's what keeps you going down the lane is you're like oh my god Oh my well, God. And you do get a win yeah. once in a while, you know, so I'm not saying, I'm just saying that I found it funny because we definitely would want to see like who this person was yeah. that got it yeah. and kind of like watch it like, oh, this person, you know, but you know, <laughs> they work for it just as hard as anybody else. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know. Um, But it is, it is, it, it was super funny to me. I was laughing my butt off on and, that. And I'm sure people have done that to me. Like, we've got oh yeah, job. of this course. This guy, this John kid, he's yeah. dead. His family dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you get to be the hater, and sometimes you get to be the hate-y. Yes. Um, yeah, so I liked that. I thought it was funny. But that's kind of me just getting off track, because I was laughing about that. What I do want to come back to is your point about the renewal, and like this, I love New York in June. Yes. And the movie kind of ends with them naked, like laying in Central Park. So Jack has finally like said, okay, I'll do it, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and, and they're doing the song and it is about renewal. The whole Fisher King myth is about renewal and the, and spring and life coming back to the land Yeah. because the Fisher King, while he was hurt and crippled, um, the land was also, um, and if you have any background in literature at all and you know, T.S. Eliot, who's my top three favorite poets. Um, he wrote this amazing poem, very long poem called The Wasteland, which is based on the Fisher King myth. And it is about this dry, arid, dead land. When I start talking about it, like all of these images come to my mind from the poem. Sure. Like, and I will show you fear and a handful of dust. Mm. Um, and at the end of that poem, um, there's a, a thunder cloud forming. So you have this idea that rain is coming back to the land and it's going to cause growth renewal. Um, but it's violent as well. So it's not just like a gentle spring rain. 
it's like a thunderstorm that's going to dump a lot of water and it's going to bring renewal, but it will be like a, a painful kind of renewal. In this movie, it's not like that. It's like these people are happy. It is like spring. It's like love is back. Green things are back. Life is back. And Perry is so intensely in love with life that having life back has just, like, totally changed him as a person. Well, the ending of the film, when they're looking up in the sky, is we see fireworks, and then we see an animated letters the end. So it gives you a great feeling, you know, when, when you're coming out of the film. Where it's different with, with the Fisher King myth that you mentioned, because I only knew the Fisher King myth from this film. Mm -hmm. So the Fisher King myth in this film is that the king put his hand, I believe, in the fire. He heard his hand. And Jeff Bridges has a bandage on his hand. Oh. <laughs> and it can be, you know, tied back logically because he's beaten by the thugs mm -hmm. when he's about to commit suicide, and Perry takes care of him. So he has these wounds. So it logically it makes sense. Yeah. But I actually caught the bandage on his hand well, this time. and his hand being in the fire was like a self-inflicted type of thing, right? So it wasn't like, like the Fisher King myth is like this wound just exists. I don't really know necessarily how it happened or where it came from. I'll have to go back. Yeah. But in, in the one that Perry tells, I think he was doing something that caused him to burn the hand. Or yeah, I think he was trying to get something from the fire. He thought the fire was pretty. I don't remember. Yeah. I just knew the, the one thing that I remembered is the, the, the hand was injured. And then we saw Jack with the bandaged hand. Yeah. Well, I did want to quickly mention also a quick trivia that I read that I really liked was that Mercedes Roll actually wrote her thesis in school about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and the Fisher <laughs> King myth. How about that? So when she got the script, and it was called The Fisher King, yeah. she was like, oh yeah, I gotta get in this. <laughs> so, so glad she did. And I am too, because she was a freaking brilliant. I'll watch her in anything. So, um, any last thoughts she wanted to, to bring up? Well, we need to bring up Tom Waits. Oh yeah, just a quick Tom Waits. Quick Tom Waits. Playing a hobo. Yes. <laughs> Which is, you know, his natural state. <laughs> well, he's playing, a, I think he's a veteran, and he's trying to get money from people. And he's saying that people pay him money so that they don't have to feel guilty in their lives, and they can just move on with their lives. So it goes back to Jeff Bridges just wanting to pay a fine yeah. or a toll. That's interesting. And, and, that's, and that's what we've got. And so you have Tom Waits sitting there, and then you have Perry sitting next to him with a cup of coffee, and since Perry is next to Tom Waits, who's, you know, looking for money, they throw a coin in, in his, his coffee. coffee. Yeah. That he's just trying to drink. Right. So he's he's not actually looking for anything, and yet he still gets it. Well, and it, it shows you that people are so uh, willing to look away and just drop money. They see a cup. Absolutely. That's it. I don't want to look at you. I don't want to talk to you. I just know I gave that money. And so I'm good. And I cannot feel guilty right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you're not really solving a problem. No. You're just ignoring it in a way that makes you feel better. Well, and giving people money is a good thing that need help. 
But I mean, let's be honest, if you have absolutely nothing and I give you, you know, a dollar or change, hell, even if I give you $200, you know, and that that's huge money. And I don't think that happens on the reg. Mm-mm. You know, I, I mean, what what can we do with that? You know, not much. I mean, it, it might get you through a few weeks or something, but it's not going to get you housing it permanently you might get robbed you might yeah you might you might be able to go stay in a hotel for a night and get clean or something wash up yep but it's not going to be a lasting change it's just again a bridge to the next time that you need help um so yeah it's more of a permanent solutions are needed i think that's really smart really smart point in this well and i think that this film really makes you believe that love can solve everything because it is love caring yeah you know it's camaraderie right the friendship between the two men i mean it's again and we talked about it both of them it's mutually beneficial and and they both are brought up you know, to, to like a higher level of existence by the end. Yeah. And then the outside person, you see two naked people in the park, you think, oh my God. Yeah. You know, you got but off your rails. They're really just lying there enjoying the night. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just, a, their friendship is the best part of the movie. It's the most important relationship in the movie, mm-hmm. which is saying something because the Mercedes role relationship is also important, but really it's about Jack and Perry um, helping each other through the hardest time in both of their lives. And that's um, why I like it. That's yeah. why I like it. It's You have somebody, you have a friend, and you can really just lift each other up, you know, and, and then the, the other pieces of their lives come together. They, they're able to be with the people that they love. Yeah. You know, and they have this friendship. I mean, what more can you ask for? Yeah. What more can you ask for? I mean, and honestly, looking at it objectively, it is a little bit simplistic. Yeah. To say, okay, this person has all these major, major mental traumas and it's solved by finding love and stealing this cup. Right. Which is also an act of love, as you rightly pointed out. But I think it works in the context of the story and they make me believe it. Um, so I, I really love it, and I think that it's a fantastic movie. The strength of all the actors involved yeah, make this believable. And the storytelling and, you know, the I, I think that you made a great point about, you know, the cinematography and the way that it's shot and the kind of oddness and strangeness yes. that Terry Gilliam kind of brings with his interest in like perception and reality and madness and this kind of stuff. It, it all works together to make a truly fantastic film. Now I could be wrong here, but in Holy Grail, wasn't there an evil knight that was more evil than the rest? There was, do you mean in the movie Monty Python and the yes. Holy Grail? There was the black knight. Yes. <laughs> um, it was Black Knight who Arthur fought, who mm-hmm. didn't want to let them cross a bridge, and said, none shall pass, and he cut his arm off, and he cut his other arm off, and he cut his leg off, and he just said, come back, I'll bite you to death or something. I mean, the guy just wouldn't give up. Yeah. But he was supposed to be this imposing presence, but King Arthur pretty quickly... <laughs> Got rid of them. <laughs> it's a ridiculous movie. 
I love that one. I'll, I would watch that pretty much at any time. I spent many hours laughing and doing lines from that movie in high school with one of my friends, much to the chagrin of my English teacher. Uh-huh. She put me together in our seating chart with this guy who I'd r- hardly talked to our whole time in school together. And I think on day one, we both found out somehow that we love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And we spent the entire rest of the school year causing absolute havoc in class because we wouldn't shut up. <laughs> so, sorry, Miss Hager. That really backfired on you. Uh-huh. it's it's basic it's amazing <laughs> it's and it's yeah it's just the flip side the the fact that like you said when you brought this up you're watching it like this is his second grail movie you know i wonder if we watch the holy grail again because i obviously need to because i can't remember everything i remember some of the the bigger bits but um i wonder if there are other uh parallels that we can draw i directly. would love to check that out we should yeah. do that yeah so food what comfort food does the Fisher King remind you of? Shish kebab. <laughs> okay, and why is that? Because it's like we have, you know, the, the, the weapon, you know, like the spear that goes through the whole thing. Okay. And we have all of our different layers. We have our protein, right? <laughs> we have, you know, which we would have had back in the days of nights. Oh, yeah. I could picture that like a big mutton <laughs> and then like some wild woolly beast to come by and be like our walking like napkin, you know? <laughs> you know, so yeah, like I could really That's see that. That's great. But it's just like I'm thinking about roughing it. I mean, again, I don't think people really carry skewers with them when they're roughing it but you know yeah, that's some people probably do i and i would love those people you know and i also love those cherry tomatoes when they're cooked oh, up yeah, they're so and good. the onions and the peppers i love making but they them. get so hot and they burst when you eat them and you just like burn yourself to absolute death but it's <sighs> still it's a good death <laughs> it's a per- well it's like when you can get that just right you know when you get that that tomato just right and it explodes it's perfect. Yeah. And I would say that the tomato explosions are like all the emotions in this film. <laughs> you know, there's all these love explosions, and it's also like the fireworks that we get and our happy conclusion. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Well, I would go with wonton soup. Okay. Because I really love the restaurant scene. It kind of reminds me of a Charlie Chaplin movie. And mm-hmm. um, when they're in this Chinese restaurant with like this Lazy Susan kind of thing in the middle of the table where they spin it around and... All the food as everyone goes, you know, around and people can get some. And it just makes me think of, like, you know, eating soup at one of these restaurants with the dumplings in it. Nice. And, uh, yeah, that's what I would say. I like that. I love that scene. It's so funny. So cute. Um, I love seeing scenes where it's love is happening and you feel that the love is happening. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because, like... They're they're not normal people. No. You know? These are not normal people. And like, I'm weird as fuck, so I love this. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being weird. No. And I just love that they can be weird together. Yes. Like, it's such a cute thing. So, I like that. Well, I think that's it for us this week. Mm-hmm. Um, next week, we will be back to discuss some kind of movie, but we don't know what yet. Yeah, the fates will inform us. Yeah, we'll figure it out between now and then. Um, but we hope you enjoyed this episode about the Fisher King. Yes. Um, we hope we didn't get too literary for you, but what are you going to do? It's Terry Gilliam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, um, if you, you know, want to go out and watch this movie again, you will not be disappointed. It's a, it's wonderful. 10 out of 10. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. And as always, stay comfy. Stay comfy.